This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. They haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and I'm joined today by John Krikorian of the Trek Profiles podcast. How are you, John? I'm doing great, Duncan. It's great to be with you here at Rake's Cafe in uh, London uh, in this beautiful summer. Uh, John is over for about a week, I think. Is that right? Over in London. So we, uh, we decided to meet up and I just thought I couldn't let you go without uh, getting you to record something for Primitive Culture while you were here. Uh, it's a pleasant surprise. So always happy to be on a podcast and talk about Star Trek. I mean, sometimes I like to give my guests time to prepare. This is the subject I'm basically just springing on, John, uh, with, with, with no time whatsoever. And I have to say, it's not something that I've given a huge amount of thought to myself. But I just thought, I, um, from listening to your podcast, John, I'd heard you mention several times that you had uh, a background in the Navy, and in particular, working on submarines. And I just thought, well, I don't know whether I'm ever going to get a chance to talk to someone else who's actually been on a submarine, um, and how that relates to their kind of... Uh, understanding or how they see things that are happening in Star Trek because obviously Star Trek as we know is a kind of you know Starfleet is essentially a naval uh, force for the most part I mean maybe borrowing here and there from other things and it's not necessarily exact one-to-one translation but it is basically based on the navy or on navies of the past Um, and I think in certain episodes you can see very much kind of submarine uh, feel specifically I'm thinking of something like Balance of Terror in the original series I know when they were designing the NX-01 for Enterprise they were consciously visiting submarines and kind of finding ways to kind of bring that uh, into the design of the ship so I'm curious how do you how does your experience uh, of having been in the Navy, having worked on submarines, how does that sort of inform your viewing of Star Trek? Is it something you're aware of when you're watching it? It's something that's always on my mind, but I would say that the number one thing that it does for me is that understanding how ships work at a fundamental level, and I'm not talking about the organization of it or the rank structure or what the rules and regs are, but just how ships operate on a technical level, I think that that's fairly universal. And even in the 23rd century, with all the amazing tech that Star Trek has, there certainly has to be some things which are still held to be true. So, for example, uh, I was on a submarine. Uh, I worked in the reactor plant, actually. I was a nuclear electrician on a fast attack submarine. And 
one of the things that would happen to us is each of us had multiple collateral duties, which means jobs in addition to our job. And we also had particular areas in our domain that we were uniquely responsible for. So as an example, three things that I had in addition to my job was I was involved in updating all the reactor plant manuals. So we would get these mailings from naval reactors in Washington, which was like sort of the headquarters for submarine engineering, and they would say, take out page 14-B and replace it with 14-B Rev 1, you know, and I'd have these big binders, and, you know, they'd update a procedure or something like that. Um, I was also in charge of the the one washer and dryer on the ship, so if, if anything broke in that equipment, that was my fault. Even if no replicators then on the, on the submarine, you, it all has to be done the old-fashioned way. It had to be done the old-fashioned way. And these were not like commercial, this was not commercial units that you would find at your local appliance store. These were built into the ship, and they were, a, but it's a washer and dryer like you might think, but it was, you know, a Navy version of it. And I was responsible for that. And uh, the other thing was the captain's stateroom. So if anything electrical, like his desk lamp or anything broke, it was my job to, to go fix it. And even if he tried to replace his own light bulb, which he wouldn't even know where the light bulbs were kept, but if he somehow injured himself or did it without even telling me that he was doing it, it would be my fault, right? Because, and there was no way for me to escape the responsibility for those things. And so in Star Trek, when I see things like whoever the captain is of whatever show we're watching, jump in to another part of the ship and start doing stuff, there's somebody down there whose job it is to do that thing. And they're probably more up on that thing than the captain is and has more hours on that console or at that station than anybody else on the ship. And it bugs me to think that the captain would know more about that. Now, they might be able to do like a couple basics, but it, it, there's many scenarios when the captain just jumps right in or some other higher level officer jumps into some unfamiliar panel and just starts clicking buttons like they would know what the heck they were doing. I, it takes me out of episodes when I see stuff like that because I know that that's not, that just cannot be true. We do, I guess, on Star Trek often see that, don't we? That particularly the senior staff seem to have, although they have their specialisms, they're able in a pinch to to take over from others. And I, I guess probably the strongest example of what you're talking about is Janeway, where because they were very keen to emphasise this is a character who has a scientific background rather than a kind of command track background, that she can step in and literally roll her sleeves up and kind of get stuck in. But I've always sort of thought, aside from you know the question of whether even with that background she's the right person to be doing that is there a kind of element of stepping on people's toes there where you you know you've got these these specialists who that is their area and if you're kind of wading in and uh i was gonna say micromanaging it goes beyond micromanaging really to basically just wade in and, and take over that that is um problematic on the other hand if it's life and death if you're in a pinch i mean uh in in star trek i've sort of always accepted it as you have to suspend disbelief and believe that she is really super on top of those things and maybe she does remember something that she read in a paper 20 years ago that no one else has thought of or whatever it is but I guess what you're saying is is from a realistic naval situation that just wouldn't be the case people are too specialized you know someone can't just take over someone else's job at, at the level that they're doing it in that way. Well, let me give you a, a real example so uh, you know the military and all militaries I don't care what uh, country you're in or what branch it is, we're all big on uh, little uh, ribbons and badges and all that sort of thing. And uh, in the United States Submarine Service, the big thing is to earn submarine dolphins, which is the, the, the mark of a submariner. And that's like the main thing that any young uh, person, when they get to a submarine, that's their goal, right? Is that they have to qualify their watches and they want to earn those dolphins. Because basically, it means that you're now in a position where you're not going to kill somebody. Uh, this is not a joke. 
people think that this is a joke, but you can literally hurt people by flushing the toilet incorrectly on a submarine. That is not a joke. All right. And people have. Are you allowed to explain how that works or is that a state secret? No, no. Well, I will happily explain it. Um, the way it works is a, a, a toilet on a submarine is, looks just like a toilet that would be in the civilian world, except it's stainless steel instead of porcelain. But it has two valves. Uh, there's a seawater valve to flush it because there's no reason to use drinkable water. Uh, so it's seawater to, to flush it. And it has a ball valve on a lever. I'm making a hand motion, which will be very, uh, you know, explain everything very clearly for the folks who are listening to this. But you have to turn on the seawater and let it fill up, and then you pull this ball valve, and everything flushes, right? And it, it, you could show someone how to do this in a, in a few minutes. The trick is never to let the seawater run all the way down the valve, because then the smells come up. So you have to keep the water seal. So you've got to kind of coordinate your two hands, right? And that's just a finesse thing. That's not, it's not dangerous. What is dangerous is, where does it all go? Well, it goes into a tank. Eventually, the tank has to be emptied. The way they empty the tank is by putting super high-pressure air into the tank and blow it all overboard. That's where it all goes, in the ocean. Well, when they're pressurizing the tank, they hang a sign on the toilet that says the tanks are pressurized. Do not use this toilet. Because if you pull that valve, what do you think happens? The, the stuff in the tank doesn't go overboard because that's uh, the seawater out there is high pressure. It ra- would rather go into the people space. And so you'll have a fountain of... Um, stuff coming out of the tank in, inside and then everyone's going to have to get shots and get medically inspected and then do a biohazard cleanup all because someone flushed the toilet incorrectly so the whole idea of those dolphins means that you are likely not to kill people and you know what things are on the ship and you've qualified on not qualified is the wrong word I shouldn't have said that but you've expressed enough knowledge to know every system on the ship what it is what it does and to know enough about each of the things that in a pinch, you could help. That does not mean that I, as someone who was in the engineering room, could run up to fire control and operate it as well as a fire control technician. That's preposterous, right? It's just, it's idiotic to think that. But could I go up there and hit and assist? Yes. And do I know enough to know what they're doing and why it's important and the terminology? Yes. And do we practice these things? Yes. But... The idea that I, as someone who's not in that particular rate, could jump in and do it? No way. Nor could a fire control technician or a quartermaster or a torpedo man or a cook run back in the engine room and do anything significant back there besides help out or hold a manual or, you know, clean something. It's just, it's not realistic. I was quite relieved when you told that story that it was, uh, as much as you said it would be serious and people would have to, uh, you know, there'd be health implications, I thought you were going to say the water was going to come in from the outside of the submarine and flood the ship and sink it or something. And I don't know whether that's just me, like, I I mean, I think it would be a toss-up for me whether I would be more anxious going in a submarine under the water or going in a spacecraft into space. But there is that kind of similarity there, isn't there, of the... Uh, which is a real link between the submarines and, and spaceships, that you're in an environment which humans cannot survive in. I mean, literally, I mean, you could say the same about a ship, but most people can't at least swim. But if you're underwater, if you're in space, you know, the, the very environment around you sort of pressing in on the, the vessel that you're in is potentially deadly. The water is trying to kill you at every possible moment, right? And so the idea is to keep the water out of the people space, right? That is one of the most important things. I can imagine that would be <laughs> pretty fundamental to, to life on a submarine. It must be one of the first things that you, you learn, you know, make sure you close all the hatches, uh, you know, all that sort of thing. But I'm kind of curious, is it after you've been down there, you know, what, weeks, months, whatever, 
do you lose your awareness of that threat? Is it something that just becomes, you know, your regular day-to-day life, it becomes sort of mundane? Or are you always kind of aware of that potential for catastrophe? Do you know what I mean? If, if something were to go wrong in that way. Well, that's why there's a program in the U.S. Navy uh, called Subsafe, uh, which actually came into being after a, a submarine was lost. And it has to do with all the protocols for keeping everything safe. And the way that we do tag-out, lock-out, the way that we do all the valves, you know, the way that all the procedures happen when the submarine goes out to sea, it's, it's critical that everything has to be done. And you, you get lost in the routine of it because there is a lot of routine. And it's just a lot of rote sort of work, you know, and, and you sort of fall into that where you know the valves, you know the things to do, you're running drills constantly. And even when you're not on the ship, you're, you're still going to school and getting lessons on various things. And so you're constantly thinking about your job, you know, and, and what, what's happening here and what's happening there. And you're constantly working on your next qualification. So it's very hard to get, I found it very hard to get complacent. I, I'm sure others may have different perspectives on it. And that's okay. I don't mean to speak on behalf of everyone. I can only speak about my own experience. But uh, I, I found it very hard to, to get that way. Because uh, you always had something in front of you that you were trying to get, so uh, it, it was very hard to forget the fact that you're underwater. Um, but was it something that caused a psychological issue, like you know, what, like this awareness of it? We, uh, yeah, you're aware of it, but you know, there's this old joke that one fish says to the other fish, "How's the water today?" And the other fish says, "What's water?" It's a lot like that, you know. It's um, the thing about a submarine is that if it's on the surface, it's the same as it is underwater. You could be in port, and it looks exactly the same. It's not like there's windows, you know. It's not like there's anything to see. So the only way you know you're on the surface is because it rocks. When you're under the water, it's totally steady. That's that's the only difference, right? Because right? it's not as stable on the surface. So the waves hit it, and it rocks back and forth. When you're under the water, it's no different than being tied up to the pier. That's an interesting point, I suppose, because uh, in Voyager, there's that episode where they lose this, they go into an area of space where there are no stars in the sky and they all start getting very depressed because there's nothing to look at. I mean, there must be a sort of psychological impact for lengthy periods of time uh, spent in a submarine, right? I mean, do you feel, you know, you, you, people must be anxious of like succumbing to cabin fever or getting kind of... Um, you know, letting it get to them in a way. I mean, what do you do to relieve that? I mean, in Star Trek, we see a lot of entertainment. We see, you know, movie nights. We see games being played. We see all these kind of things. I imagine there must be similar things going on in the real world Navy of the submarines. Is that right? We did not have a holodeck, Duncan, if that's what you're asking me. <laughs> uh, we didn't have a holodeck. But, you know, there's card games, you know, people playing cards in the cruise mess and people watching movies and people reading books and listening to music. And there, there's those things that happen. But to be honest, I think... There's really two things, I think, that go to the heart of that. First is, to be assigned to a submarine, you have to volunteer. So I think the people who would most likely be affected would probably select out of that. You know? And it's not a matter of you're opted in, you know, unless you opt out. You have to specifically say, I will go to a submarine if the Navy wants to put me there. Like, you have to sign up. So I think that prevents a lot of problems in the first place. The second part, and again, I'm just speaking from my own experience, you know, it, things may have changed. I, I don't really know how it is these days because I'm talking about the 90s when I was in. But we were so exhausted that there was just not a lot of time for idleness. Uh, the ship worked on an 18-hour day. So at the time, again, this may have all changed, but uh, at the time, it was six-hour shifts, and there were three shifts a day. But the ship still worked on a regular local 24-hour time. So we were in Virginia, so we were, had the local time in Virginia. We'd go out to sea, and we kept that clock. 
and you'd stand watch, like let's say from 6 a.m. To, to noon, and then the shift after your watch standing shift was your maintenance period. So you had things to fix and things to work on, and you know, I'm changing the light bulb in the captain's cabin and fixing the laundry, and then I'd have these other pieces of maintenance that would be assigned to me to things to clean or things to operate or whatever. And then that third period would be my sleep period. But if you think about it, on an 18-hour day, the schedule is shifting through that 24-hour regular cycle, right? And so, but during the day, there'll be meetings, there'll be training, there'll be drills, there'll be all kinds of normal things that happen too. And if that happens during your sleep period, you have to go to that. You don't get to opt out just because you're supposed to be sleeping. If they're they're doing a fire drill, you have to get up and help fight the fake fire. So you don't get to say, I'm not going to do that. So we were getting underway, I don't know, five hours of sleep out of every 24-hour day. I mean, sleep was a rare commodity, and we were just dead tired and working all the time. So you didn't have a lot of time for idleness, and I think that that can sometimes lead to some of these things you're talking about is when people don't have anything else to do but dwell on that stuff, and we didn't. I mean, if I literally did not have anything to do, I was in the rack. My sense of... um how it might be in a submarine is, it, like I say, you're, you're very kind of cut off. You're cut off because you can't see what's going on outside. Are you always aware of exactly what the mission is? Because that's one thing that sort of comes up now and then in Star Trek, like figure the episode Lower Decks, for example, that, you know, because we mostly focus on the, the very senior level, who obviously are all pretty much fully briefed on everything that's going on most of the time. But the majority of the people on those ships don't necessarily know where they're going, why they're going there, what's going to happen. I mean, how kind of clued in are you to what your submarine is actually what the mission is at a given time well because i worked in the engine room to be perfectly honest the only thing that i really cared about is what the temperature of the seawater was that's the that's the only thing that the location of the ship had any effect on what i was doing uh, because the temperature of the seawater affects certain things in the reactor plant and that that mattered so if you're in a in the caribbean you would do things a little bit differently than if you're in the arctic uh, just because of the way the ship had to be run because temperature of the seawater was a big deal. Um, other than that, it didn't affect anything I was doing. Um, the only difference, and this might be surprising because it was surprising to me when I first got to the ship, was I spent two years in school where I learned chemistry, physics, radiological fundamentals, calculus. The Navy taught me all that stuff. And you go to a, a, a real live nuclear power plant that's on land, for six months and you operate that under instruction and you have to qualify on that so you get to the ship and you are very well trained right and the first thing that happened was um, the first thing that happened was they made me do a couple of other little jobs but then we got right into working up for one of our inspections for a nuclear reactor safety inspection it's called an ORS exam like horse without the H and I was a I was a fire so I would put on a piece of red flannel uh, and I would stand in the corner and I would say, I'm a fire. I'm a fire. And some guy would walk around the corner and go, oh, my God, a fire, and then try to put me out. And throw a bucket of water over you? Well, no, they'd get out the fire hoses and had to simulate right. doing the whole thing, you know. So we were just working all the time. I totally lost track of where I was going with that. I had a, I had a point there um, that I lost in telling my little story about being a fire. That's all right. I think it's fascinating, the idea of these kind of exercises. And, I mean, obviously, you know, you were not serving at a time of kind of active military conflict I guess necessarily but I guess in the Star Trek world obviously we see a lot of these kind of engagements I mean I mentioned Balance of Terror as a kind of very submarine influenced uh, storyline about combat essentially but presumably that's stuff that you trained for and that you prepared for and in the engine room you might not really know 
necessarily exactly what's going on up on the bridge, but you're kind of, you're going to be stuck in the middle of it if it happens. Now now, now I remember what I was going to tell you. So the, the way that it worked is in the engine room, in my particular division, which was electrical division, we had three people on duty at any given time. So there are three positions that we would have. And the junior most one was called the auxiliary electrician. So if you're an electrician, you show up to the ship, that's the first job you're going to get, where you're wandering around the engine room with a clipboard and you're checking all these readings uh, every hour and uh, writing them down in your little log book and you're looking for anything electrical that's amiss. And if uh, the electrical operator, who's the senior guy, if he wants you to go look at something or check out a piece of equipment, he's going to tell you what to do and where to go. So that's the junior most job. And that's the job I wanted to do, was to do my electrical stuff. You know, I'd been in school for years to do this. When I got to the ship, I found out that that is not how this works. Whenever the ship was going into combat, they got, or, or doing anything of any sort of tactical significance, they would shut, they canceled the auxiliary electrician. That, we didn't have it. I would go up to the control room, and I would stand in front of a table, which is actually about the size of this table that we're sitting at, and I would actually plot our location and whoever we were tracking on a big piece of tracing paper with colored pencils and a protractor. And I thought to myself, I was expecting computers. I was expecting something a little bit more whamadine than this. But it literally was tracing paper on a glass table and rulers and protractors. And it was amazing to me that it was as low-tech as it was. Which is amazing because it does really give you a sense of kind of history and the, the sort of naval lineage in a way. I mean, that's probably not that different to how it might have been several hundred years earlier on a ship at sea. Do you know what I mean? The idea of kind of uh, these quite old tools being used in a very, you know, in an extremely modern. I mean, a submarine must be a very high-tech sort of state-of-the-art piece of technology, right? But yet you're kind of relying on these very old tried and trusted methods. Well, one of the ideas in building submarines generally, and again, this might have all changed, you know, and they may have a different perspective now, but at the time I was on, they, even though nuclear power is a very sort of modern, high-tech concept, the, the, the actual tools that we used were very simple. I mean, basic switches, dials, electrical indicators. You know, there were very, very, very few computers on the ship because they wanted everything to be repairable by the people who were on board. You know, if you're on a submarine in, in battle conditions, you, you just can't call up, like, the depot and say, hey, ship me some logic boards. You know, you need, to be, you need to be able to fix everything on board that ship with what you had on the ship. And you don't want to carry, like, a whole bunch of logic boards and, you know, spare parts with you. So we were literally set up to have, you know, soldering irons and, you know, be able to fix uh, mechanical switches and dials. So you were able to kind of... Um keep going almost indefinitely presumably in that sense you, you know repairing the ship you didn't necessarily have to return to to port or return to dock so you know if you were stuck in the uh, aquatic equivalent of the delta quadrant you'd be kind of making your own repairs keeping things going you could kind of um the crew could could be self-sufficient almost in that sense in at a, at a real level the limiting factor on board how far a, how long a u.s submarine can go is food that, that is the limiting factor because you can make air, you can make water. In fact, the water that we drank on the submarine was 99.999% pure H2O, chemically pure, because the same water we would drink is the same water that had to be reactor grade uh, to go into the reactor. And you didn't want any impurities in the reactor. So it was the purest distilled water. You know? So we, we were fine. You know, the only thing we would run out of, the first thing we would run out of would be food. 
And I'm kind of curious, just uh, speaking, I guess, slightly more generally from the perspective of being part of the Navy, part of a kind of military organisation, when you look at Starfleet in Star Trek, I mean, you talked a little bit about how uh, people may be taking on roles that they don't seem realistic to you, but as a kind of military, or at least sort of, I mean, I think we can fairly well say Starfleet is a military organisation. I, mean, I know there's some sort of question over, uh, you know, Starfleet and the Federation and kind of what, how militarised Star Trek's view of the future is. But does it sort of ring true to you as a military organisation? Does the kind of hierarchy, does the structure seem reasonable? Does the approach to discipline, does, do you know, do, do these things kind of feel believable to you or are you constantly thinking, oh, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't seem quite right? The way these people are interacting doesn't seem quite right. Yeah, I'm particularly thinking of the episode in Voyager, and Voyager's on my mind because I'm, I'm watching Voyager now straight through, and I had not seen it before, so I'm towards the end of season five um, as we record this, and there's an episode where uh, Paris gets demoted for something, right. and I watched the episode and I thought, that's it? He gets demoted for this? Yeah. And the question that was on my mind as someone who was in the Navy was, what actually does a demotion mean for these people on the Voyager. Because in the real Navy, in any real Navy, I don't care which one it is, rank has pay implications, which doesn't matter in Starfleet. The size of your quarters, which, again, if you look at Harry Kim, who's an ensign, he's got a pretty gigantic spread, right? Which re- no ensign right now has in any fleet, right? <laughs> no ensign has that, what, what Harry Kim has. So I don't think that matters. Uh, what privileges... It, it, it literally is nothing but pips on his collar. It doesn't mean anything. Oh, it might have career implications, but they're stuck on a ship in the Delta Quadrant. They're not going any... I mean, there's no option for him to get kicked out. It's not like some other command is going to come along and want to take him. So the whole idea of, like, I'm where we're on this, you know, away from where we're supposed to be, and I'm demoting you? BFD. It just doesn't matter. Well, they still need him on the helm. I guess that's the thing. It's like they can't even take his job away from him because he's considered there's to no be essential. To yeah, there's no one else to do it. So there's no reason to even go through the whole thing. It's a charade. Yeah. And it just was meaningless. Now, were there other punishments that they could have put? Yeah, I mean, they put him in the brig at one point, you know, but that that might be a real thing, you know. Or, but it seems like the privileges for an ensign are so good that demoting someone from lieutenant it, it's just it's irrelevant so what big deal I mean, what's going to happen is retirement's going to be pushed off by a few years I, I just don't see what the point of it all was and what about the kind of general interaction between the crew because I mean we see I, I guess what we m- might think is that their relationships seem quite friendly they seem on quite kind of um, sociable terms in a way there's a sometimes there seems to be a sort of lack of formality i'm curious whether that's something or or, or is that something that maybe is a kind of transatlantic thing that say in the american forces uh i mean famously in the second world war i know a lot of uh british soldiers were kind of surprised at how relaxed the relationships were between the officers and men in the american army for example that that was quite a different sort of setup so I'm, i'm curious does that does that aspect of it sort of ring true to you so, I, again, this is where I'm limited by my knowledge of just the American Navy and how it worked there. But the captain was usually meant to be a beloved figurehead. Right, okay. And the executive officer was always meant to be a bad guy. Okay. And they were, in all cases, meant to be someone who was uh, dr- meant to be uh, uh, 
running around the ship looking for problems, uh, taking all the bad stuff on themselves so that the captain never had to utter a bad word and got complete love and loyalty and adoration. Right. So the XO was the one who, when he came walking into your space, you had to watch out. When the captain came, you were like, oh, hi, captain. You know, it, you, you, the captain is beloved, right? And the XO was the heavy. That is how it universally was every command I was at. Um, Starfleet, not so much, no. you know. And Although you could say with Kirk and Spock, I mean, not that Spock necessarily comes across as the heavy, but you can kind of imagine him being the kind of the stricter of the two almost and Kirk gets to be the kind of charming guy who turns up at the party and, you know, knocks back a few drinks and has a nice time with everyone. Yeah, I, I think that's true, but I think that might have been just because of Spock who he was. Yeah. Um, it, it, it didn't matter if you were the nicest, most soft-spoken sort of person. If, if you're in the XO role, your job is to crack skulls and leave a trail of dead bodies behind you. And to and I, I am joking, but only a little bit. Um, but you are literally the one who is to take all the bad stuff off the captain's plate so that they can just focus on the things that they have to focus on because uh, they have a lot of other things to be dealing with. And so I saw a little bit of this. I was very pleased to see in a recent one of the recent Voyager episodes that I just watched. So it had to have been one towards the middle or end of season five where Chakotay was given a tune-up to Torres uh, on her attitude. And that is exactly correct in my experience, is that that's exactly what XOs do. As they run around, they're like, what are you doing? You know, unblank yourself and get your job done and, you know, don't be running around doing X, Y, and Z. And meanwhile, the captain just gets to glide above it all and, you know, be this beloved figurehead and, you know, get your adoration and loyalty. That's very interesting. And I suppose, I mean, people often complain Chakotay is kind of an underused character in Voyager. And I feel like we don't actually see that much of him in the kind of XO role. I suppose probably the person we see the most in that role is Riker. And it's interesting with what you were saying. Uh, I think in some ways he does and he doesn't fit what you were saying. On the one level, you know, Picard is slightly aloof. So Riker is very much the bridge between him and the and the rest of the crew. On the other hand, Riker seems to be the kind of convivial guy at the bar, you know, playing in the band, doing all the kind of socialising. I mean, he does have that kind of tendency to shout a bit. He does have a slightly kind of shouty side, but he seems very much like he's kind of managing... It's almost like sometimes you get that in a, in a couple, don't you? That, you know, one person does all the, you know, writes all the cards to the family and so on. You sort of feel like Riker's almost that guy. He's kind of handling the interpersonal stuff so that Picard can sort of focus on the, the more intellectual side of command right. somehow. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, it's funny because I remembered uh, when I was watching Deep Space Nine straight through for the first time. Deep Space Nine was something I'd only caught bits and pieces of. And so a few years ago, I did a full watch through. And I remembered, I know people like to bag on Move Along Home. I, I actually like the episode. And as I'm sitting there watching it, the one thing I always think every time I watch uh, Cisco skipping through that, that thing and the, you know, a la Moraine and all that, I just kept, I look at that and I think, Picard would never be doing this. Like, he would never be doing this. I don't care what was happening. He would never be doing this. <laughs> but, you know, and that might, but to get back to your point, it, it's, that's how Riker may have chosen to do it was by being sort of a pal, you know, and sort of being very gentle in his way. And that might have just been him, but that was not my experience. Most XOs that I dealt with, in fact, all of them were heavies. And it was the, it was the job to be that way. And you could tell sometimes that some guys liked it a little too much and some wore it like an ill-fitting suit and they didn't want to do it, but they had to do it because that's what the gear required. 
Now, that might have been a function of the time. It might just have been a function of the American Navy at the time. I don't know. But, but that was my experience of it. And are they, as in the case of Riker, basically, you know, one step away from their own captaincy? I mean, is that part of the, like, they're, they're preparing for that and then they get to go and be the more chummy captain? I mean, is it just an act? Because you say they seem to enjoy it too much. That sort of suggests some people are predisposed to that kind of role. But if it's, if it's just sort of a certain role or a certain step along the way, then do they shed all of that when they suddenly get that promotion? Well, they certainly should. Um, and But it's never a direct route. Um, and this is true, I think, in most militaries right now, is that um, typically what will happen is they, they go to a sea billet, uh, a sea tour, and they go to a shore duty billet uh, in between. So they don't stay. It's, it's rare that someone would stay on a seagoing vessel for an extended period of time, like, you know, many, many years. Normally, they would go do two years on a ship and then, you know, a year and a half on shore, maybe a year on shore, then two years out at sea. So that commander or that lieutenant commander in a case of a fast attack boat, who's the XO, he would be his lieutenant commandership. He would do his tour there. Then he would go to a shore billet and then he would go up for promotion. If he doesn't get the promotion, he's going to retire. He's going to get out. If he gets the promotion, then he'll go to prospective commanding officer school. And that is a case, that's a special case where they may wash out, they may not. Uh, and if they go through that and they graduate that, then they'll get an assignment. So then you're a captain and then you sort of almost come back in at that new rank and with that new role. So it's very different then from what we see with Riker, where it's always like, when's he going to accept this next offer? And, you know, he's constantly being offered captaincies and turning them down. Um, that's, that's very interesting. That's something, too, that, that always bugged me because... One of the things about Starfleet that I think we all have to accept, and I think this is true with the current military as well, is that there are many, many perfectly qualified candidates to do things. And so, like, I'm reminded of, um, well, I don't want to talk about another fandom show, but, but how many perfectly qualified commanders are out there who are ready to be promoted to captain? And I got the feeling that, you know, they're not going to make that call more than once. You know, if they say, we're offering you captaincy of this vessel, and you turn it down, enjoy your time as XO, because when it's up, you're done. You know, I just don't see Starfleet, you know, going on hands and knees saying, oh, pretty please, Commander, will you please accept captaincy for the third time? I, I just don't see it, because there has to be a list a mile long of super qualified people who are ready to do those jobs. So Riker really is sabotaging his career more, more even than the show represents it, it's something that didn't just it just didn't sit well with me it's it's something that i just i can't imagine in any organization that they're just going to take that and you know we're offering you the thing that everybody wants and if you turn it down they got plenty of other people to ask I, i i just don't see them asking twice that's interesting. One of the things that crossed my mind where you were talking about these XOs as these kind of tough guys is obviously the question of discipline. And presumably on a submarine, it is important that you, you, know, you don't have any kind of insubordination. You don't have even people falling out. I mean, it's quite a tense, pressurized environment, yes. right? You need to be managing those relationships, presumably, because if you have two crewmen who are at each other's throats, even, that's going to be a difficult situation. I mean, how is that kind of the interpersonal stuff managed because like Voyager stuck in the Delta Quadrant where you can't you know I mean I I know on the submarine you can get rid of someone at the next opportunity I suppose but really you do have to all be able to work together put differences aside there's this is going to sound like a really bizarre comparison and I and I I don't mean to make this sound like an insult because it's not but I imagine that it's a lot like what I would think a prison would be like 
in that there's formal disciplinary proceedings that involve like the, the structure. And then there's an informal set of disciplinary procedures that happen amongst the people themselves without anything being written down about it. And there's a lot of that in the submarine fleet. Um, whatever, you know, if, if you have a job, and I don't care what your job is, you know, whether you're a barista at a Starbucks or whether you're a corporate titan, you have people that you work with on a day-to-day basis. The fact is, at the end of the day, you get to go home. And then you get to go see your friends. And you sleep with your spouse or your partner or whoever. When you're in a submarine, you're working with the same people that you're taking all your meals with and you're sleeping 24 inches away from them. And you're hearing the same jokes and the same stories and you may get along with them, you may not. It's literally luck of the draw. You just don't know. And so there's a set of norms and a set of rules that develop on what's okay to do, what's not okay to do. Uh, There's no privacy in that world. Um, Literally everyone sees everybody naked all the time. There is no privacy of any kind. Everybody knows what everybody's doing. Everybody knows who ate what for dinner last night. I mean, it is literally down to that level because you're eating with the same people you're working with. And you're all eating the same things and watching the same film and reading the same books. And so there's a very informal set of rules that happen to punish bad behavior. So if someone is shirking, there's ways that that can be handled without even involving the official structure. Um, which can make people's lives incredibly unpleasant. And there's no getting around it. There's no getting away from it. You know, there's not even any getting any help for it, right? Unless you want to start involving the command structure, in which case you're putting yourself in the jackpot. So, and you never know how that can spin around on you. So there's like these two completely parallel structures. There's the official track, you know, which involves going to commanding officer or going to some designated person you know, going to the XO and reporting somebody and, you know, going to their chief and asking them to be written up. And then there's the other way that things were handled. And I'm not talking about, it, it was never violence or beating people up. It was never things like that. But it was things that were handled in a much more, in a much more subtle way. So as an example, as an electrician on the ship, one of my jobs was to make sure that everything was electrically safe. If you had a, a, a portable music device, at the time, we had you could have a disc man. You know, the, the youngsters out there would not know what that is. But you would have a disc man, you'd have a rechargeable battery pack. Well, you would have to plug that into the ship. If you and I were not on good terms, Duncan, and you had done something wrong, like let's say you had not followed the instructions correctly in the laundry, which was my piece of equipment, and you'd broken it because you did not follow the instructions correctly after I had told you after the last time not to do that again you might get the cord cut for your electrical device because now it's electrically unsafe I saw it's got a little fraying there and I don't want you plugging that into my electrical plant you can cause a short right now I've just given you a tune up that's within my power to do and now you've been taught a lesson right and if, if, I'm, if I'm questioned on it it's like I have no look there was a fray on the cord right there I felt it was unsafe you know you want to take it to my chief because I got something for your chief if we want to go that route, right? And then our, our chiefs can fight it out. Maybe that'll come back on you. Maybe it'll come back on me. But now it's a, it's a roll of the dice, or we can just call it handled. You know, so depends on how you want to do it. So there was a lot of that that went on, you know, and, and there were just, you know, who's going to pick the movie? It could come down to whether or not you get a piece of dessert. It, 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 there's, because remember, everybody's up in everybody's business, and you cannot live as an island on a submarine. You're reliant on other people to do things for you. It's a whole kind of 
microcosm of society almost in that in that place or a whole society of its own which i think is something that we do see in star trek one way or another in the in the starships that we follow well um john i'm gonna have to run and get a train i'm afraid but it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast you want to quickly let our listeners know where they can find you online and where they can find your podcast if they want to listen further Absolutely. You can find me at, uh, at Trek Profiles on Twitter. Uh, TrekProfiles.com is my website. And my podcast is basically an interview show where I talk to other Star Trek fans about why they love Star Trek. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, find me on Trek Profiles. It is a fantastic show. I've been listening since day one, and I've been lucky enough to be a guest on your show as well, which uh, I told you at the time is quite a daunting experience. It's a bit like going into therapy, I think, kind of Star Trek therapy. But it's a fascinating show and really gives you an insight into the variety of fans that are out there and why we all love this franchise as much as we do. So, John, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Duncan. It was a pleasure. Previously on Trek.fm, The Ready Room. But, Larry, how do you know that there's not a house somewhere out there on the forge where Cybok's in the living room, Michael's in the living room, and there are like six other people in the living room that Amanda and Sarek and Spock never talk about. They t- oh, sure, they took us in for a while and they threw us in the house on the forge. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Wait, so what switched between your two lists? Calypso comes in, Runaway comes in second oh, of right, importance. Right. Okay. But Calypso comes in second in enhancement of the season. Okay. I see and really, even there. in importance, I could probably, in my head, flip Calypso and Runaway. Because I mm-hmm. don't need Runaway. Standard Orbit. Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, is the best-named movie of the first six movies. I think. Because from a marketing point of view, from a Star Trek point of view... It's just a great title. You know, not talking about the execution of the film. I just mean, it's a great title. The other movie titles were, eh, eh. You know, I mean, they weren't that creative. Literary Treks. So I, I think if you have an idea or a story for a Star Trek novel, it w- you would be better served if that came on the heels of the 10 pieces of fan fiction that you've written or whatever, or, or things that you've written on your own that, not necessarily fan fiction, but... If you practiced as a writer and, and have honed your your craft, because they're going to want you to be a, a good writer. Yeah, they're going to, and and that comes back to you know, it's they're going to tie in editors, and this is not just Star Trek. This is anybody. They're going to go with people who have demonstrated an ability to hit their marks, hit their marks clean, easy to work with, or at least able to work with. Um, and, and can do that on a, and can do that on a, it's like okay I did it once no okay well now do it again now do it again now do it three times in a row now do it five times in this one calendar year and that's what else is happening on trek.fm check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts if you're an Apple user be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple podcasts on iPhone iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. 
Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm, to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co-hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at at Clara Jean MC, and Tony at at AJ Black Writer. You're blended all right. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our... background noise and then there's you, know. <laughs> you can totally leave that in <laughs> it's, it's, it's very present it's very yeah, yeah, yeah it's very candid in the moment <laughs>